Hello and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your well-being, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical health and mental health, and my 5-minute food fact series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host, a nutritionist with a passion for well-being. Before I introduce today's guest, I will take a moment to let you know that you can subscribe to my podcast on YouTube, hit the red subscribe button, or on your favourite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. I will also mention that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure, or prevent injuries or medical conditions and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professional. Today, I am here with Mark Hurd. Many of us with school-aged children know that school canteens, tuck shops as they're commonly called in Australia, can leave a lot to be desired when it comes to healthy offerings. That might be okay if your child orders from the tuck shop once in a blue moon, but if you need to rely on the tuck shop regularly or your child is a boarder with no other option, this is not a great state of affairs because it does not encourage healthy eating patterns and one could go as far as to say it discourages it. Another reality of school tuck shops is that they are often outsourced to large companies who are driven by profit and not the well-being of our precious offspring. I've looked at menus from several school tuck shops in Adelaide, where I live, and these are some of the common features. They include highly processed goods like chips or crisps, baked goods like pies, pasties and sausage rolls, sweet baked goods like donuts, sweetened drinks, flavoured milks and iced teas. However, there are also healthy options available like fruit and salad sandwiches, but these are competing with what some children think are more exciting options. Imagine if someone who had a genuine passion for healthy food took over the school canteen and totally transformed it into a place offering healthy food low in highly processed ingredients like refined sugars. It might sound like a fairy tale, but that's exactly what today's guest Mark Hurd and his team have done. Mark's background is in hospitality in hotels and nightclubs in Sydney in the late 1980s. In 1994, Mark and his now wife Jane returned to Adelaide. In Adelaide, Mark owned two organic stores. One was called Organic To Go, where he sold healthy foods, including takeaway healthy foods and a range of organic foods. During that time also, Mark and his aunt ran a food and juicing course at the Cancer Council to help people understand the benefits of eating well. Mark was also the chair of the Natural Health Association for over seven years and a member for 26. It recently wound up after 51 successful years. Mark's passion is to help people eat sustainable, organic food, to grow their own where possible and to recycle whatever they can and encourage people to look after our amazing planet. It is my pleasure to be here with Mark today. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you for coming on today. So, Mark, can you tell us a bit about your career in the food industry? Certainly. Um, I was uh, drawn to the hospitality industry 
in the early 80s and that took me to Sydney where I was working with uh, a hotel group and of all things running uh, nightclubs uh, mm. which is uh, quite an uh, interesting time of my life. Yeah, late, late nights. Yes, that yeah. was uh, five o'clock in the in the morning going oh, to bed. Goodness. But I was a, an early riser, so I'd be up around ten and get it the, as most out of the day as I could. You moved from uh, working in the hospitality industry to owning and running your own organic stores. So, where did your interest in organic food come from? Um, I guess when I when I left school and travelled a lot, I ended up. Um, living with other blokes and I was the only one that would be uh, at the stove at night so it was an uh, early introduction to cooking and learning about food and choosing food and uh, from that it just uh, it just became a natural uh, development that I the food I enjoyed was pretty much simple uh, food and uh, I, I refer to Jamie Oliver saying that if you want to eat well eat what the peasants eat mm. and that's that was uh, always been I guess part of my uh, lifestyle is to eat simply and well and eat seasonal produce and and of course that then was a natural process to um, be interested in organic and foods that are without any pesticides or mm-hmm. fungicides so that was easy to accept and adopt did any of that knowledge come from your family? Did you learn to cook as a child or did you acquire that skill when you were older? No, being the youngest of five, my uh, lovely mother would uh, cook for the five of us. And in those days, it was meat and three veg three times a day, seven times a week. So <laughs> there was no cooking by me at home. It was only once I left home and travelled that that uh, developed and that interest then came from that um so no i was a late a late bloomer a late, have you have you taught your children how to cook are they interested in cooking or not one is capable and is interested in in it uh, certainly the other one uh, thinks everything just comes out of the fridge already made <laughs> That sounds a bit like my children. Yeah. Oh no, I'm trying. I am teaching them how to cook because I want them to be able to be independent beings when they leave home. <laughs> so, um, and can you tell us a bit about your eating and food philosophy? You have touched on that already. Yes, um, it was living in the hills in the Adelaide Hills for over twenty years. We were lucky to have some land, so. It was uh, for me just a, a great interest to to grow things. We had an orchard and we had a veggie garden, and we, we were able to have uh, access via a bore. So uh, there's just a lot of enjoyment in producing mm. your own food and seeing it grow and sharing it with people. Um, and then from there, the, I worked for a, an organic wholesaler out near Paraka for some time, and you meet growers and you you see how passionate they are, yeah. and that. That just you absorbed that uh, enthusiasm from them, and then there was an opportunity of a an, uh, an old fruit and veg shop down at Glenelg that came up, and I took that on. And I guess I was a bit ahead of my time because in those days down at Glenelg, the average age was about ninety, and there weren't too many. Oh, really? People, <laughs> not too many people interested in organic food. So although I did. Uh, convert some people and they enjoyed it it was a tough time to introduce um, organic food at a retail level yeah yeah because I think um, it's generally is this true it's generally a little bit more expensive yes you would find that it's changed greatly Mm. but uh, 25 years ago there were more 
local organic growers who had either uh, had land that their fathers worked and they converted to organic mm-hmm. and there are a lot of them about there are less now but um, they they work on a smaller scale than the yeah. big guys do uh, it's probably more labor intensive uh, there's less use of machinery um, there's no doubt that the product is is tastier and absolutely I, and I think better for you and I think mm. these days there's a lot of uh, knowledge and uh, scientific um, study that shows that nutritionally it's better for you so it's always been uh, easy to accept that but uh, yeah the price point has probably been something that's been a deterrent for a lot of families for a long time yeah I think that's right unfortunately um, but now we'll move our discussion on to the school canteen that Mark has been involved with so about six years ago Mark and a team of people from within the Scotch College community which included some well-known local chefs, took over the school canteen. And Scotch College is an independent co-educational school in Adelaide, just for those of you who don't know. And Mark, I believe it was a bit of a mad scramble to get it up and running because you only had two weeks to do it. So how did you pull that off? (laughs) It was, uh, yes, it was interesting. It was December six years ago and the principal and the uh, one of the administrators said, oh, would you... Uh, be interested in running the canteen because the lease is up and the company we've had uh, run it for a number of years has uh, relinquished it. And um, I knew that students and staff were a little unhappy with uh, the quality of the food. So I said, certainly. And I said, how much time have you got? And he said, oh, they finish in two weeks. I said, oh, that's great. (laughs) Love a challenge. Yeah. And so, with as you can imagine, the two weeks left of school uh, in term four remaining, they and that was the end of their lease. They had absolutely no interest in being um, too helpful to me. <laughs> so uh, I, I chatted with them and tried to understand uh, something about their business. But we we walked into pretty much an empty canteen. It had a very old stove, a deep fryer, and some benches and a cool room. Um, and uh, over that summer I had two incredible ladies both who were parents at the school Kate Sparrow who was formerly part owner with a husband of Nettie's Two in Adelaide and Hutt Street, a famous gourmet restaurant Absolutely brilliant Well known and well respected Um, She came on board and also another incredible lady, Angela Taddeo, who's now Angela Bosboom, she started Pastor Deli and had over 20 years experience in, in producing amazing food. So they both came on board and their outstanding background and work ethic and uh, the three of us got together and came up with a menu and found some helpers and we opened on time for the first term the following year. Yeah, what a great achievement. That's amazing. So can you talk us through some of the practicalities of um, the menu for a school canteen? So I assume it has to be simple to prepare and cost-effective and delicious. Yes, it does. So we made our our goal very easy to look for local seasonal food, fresh uh, daily where possible, looking at suppliers that uh, could produce food that we felt were up to our standards so foods that we couldn't produce we look for suitable suppliers um, our understanding with food was simple we were only going to do with whole, whole meal food so uh, all our bread and wraps are a whole meal 
we decided to make as many of the products as we could so things like fresh fruit salad making our own hummus uh, making our own cakes cake uh, Kate Sparrow's background was baking as well as many other hats and so she started making all our chocolate chip cookies and we would make um, our brownies would be made with rice flour so that would uh, be available to gluten-free mm-hmm. people um, fresh salads we would have specials each day things like honey soy drumsticks and basmati rice butter chicken with rice and vegetables um, we'll do meatball subs um, and we give the kids every day there's a choice of at least two main courses as well as all the other regular foods. That that really sounds amazing because that's really the crux of this conversation. How do you change the existing menu into something <clears throat> healthier that's also delicious? So, And you've clearly managed to do that. Um, what about the planning of the menu? Like, how did you pick dishes that you could produce um, in large enough quantities that would be tasty? Like, was that the something that the chefs helped you with? Definitely, yes. Uh, a great team. Now, what we'll do is before each term, we'll have a, a prep day, and on that prep day. Uh, three or four staff come together and they'll make a lot of the main meals mm-hmm. which will then freeze in quantities that we know is for one day. So the, the butter, chicken and many other main courses will be made the, uh, during that day, um, frozen, and then we'll simply bring it out. And then each week on a Monday we let all the staff and students know what the specials are that week. And that's how we prepare our food accordingly so that um, you have to manage with what you've got. And we can only do that with an amazing community where we rely on a lot of volunteer parents to come in and help us. That was one of the other things I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned to me earlier that you'd set up an online system where people can log in and choose a shift. Do you think having this kind of volunteer community has uh, created a sense of community and cohesiveness? Most definitely. The The benefits of, of parents coming in is that A, they get involved, they see the students at recess and lunchtime mm. and they can communicate with their sons or daughters and their friends. Um, they learn a lot about the school. It's better than going to a parents and friends meeting because <laughs> your first-hand knowledge yeah. you can talk to. And most of us in the canteen are either current uh, parents or have had kids at the school, so we can share a lot of information. And parents love that contact and learning. They also go home with some great cooking tips because as they're working with us they find out how we prepare food Mm -hmm. and there are shortcuts and tips and things that they didn't know about before and they they love that we give them a lovely cup of organic coffee and morning tea and we send them home with lunch so for a three-hour shift they 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 enjoy it immensely that sounds great it's a win-win um so do the volunteers need to have any training before they come in and help no, not at all. I think some were initially scared that we'd throw them on the cashier at recess oh, and they'd yeah. have to remember all the buttons. We <laughs> that would be terrifying. <laughs> we don't do that. Um, no, look, we've had general practitioners, we've had farmers, we've had eye surgeons, we've had lawyers, we've had nurses, we've had an incredible eclectic uh, mix of parents and it's simple if they can cut up 
and make fruit salad or mm. cup a, uh, cut a croissant in half and put something <laughs> in it, um, then they're great. They're qualified. <laughs> they are qualified, yeah. Did you encounter any resistance from either students or staff when you were changing the menu and taking away some of those things like crisps and donuts? <laughs> no, it was interesting. I still remember the first day that we opened. The queue was from the front door out and back again it went for about 40 meters goodness and it staggered us and we were looking think gosh have we got enough food mm. we have not had one complaint in six years we about the quality about the choice or the range of food in all that time we've only had incredible students staff and parents fully supportive of what we're doing Oh, that's really wonderful it does show that if the opportunity is presented people like to eat healthy seasonal food doesn't it if if the choice is there absolutely i mean my days going back to a, a, a canteen or we'd call it the tuck shop mm. um it was a fritz and sauce and white bread sandwich and possibly <laughs> a salad sandwich would consist of tomato and cucumber and a piece of lettuce and maybe that plastic cheese <laughs> and that rubber cheese so uh no their 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 sandwiches and their selection have changed i mean to have sushi and vietnamese cold rolls or bun mi rolls and chicken larks etc um, the kids are all um, amazed but uh, as I say they're very very grateful and appreciative yeah that's that's excellent the other thing you mentioned is that you've cut down on uh, the number of sweetened drinks available because you know in the modern world where obesity is such a problem that that is one of the main culprits so what do you offer in terms of beverages um, we deal with a company from uh, Piccadilly, so we get their lovely spring water bottled. Um, we deal with a local Mountain Fresh juices, so again, these are unsweetened local juices. The only other uh, beverage is um, we deal with Fleury milk, because obviously we've got a, a espresso machine in the canteen now for hot chocolates and stuff. And, for drinks so we'll use their lovely unhomogenized milk and we have their flavored milk and yogurts and that's it mm, that's great sometimes i think probably not having too many products is also helpful you know yeah i think the size of the uh, of the facilities you have the cool room or the fridge base determines the choices but uh, no there's no confectionery i mean we have some chips and a golden north ice cream and Pretty much, that's it. The rest mm. of it we make. We make our own cakes, biscuits, muffins. Uh, so there's plenty of things that uh, are alternative and tasty instead. Mm. And they're made with real food. That's the thing, isn't it? it? I think it's okay to have a piece of cake if it's home-baked, but not if it's full of palm oil and all sorts of sugar substitutes. <laughs> no, and we and we and these days you have to cater for, we've got gluten-free, we cater for mm. vegans. Um, so you can, st you know, we have Bliss Balls and Muesli Bars. They're both gluten-free. Um, so there is the option for, uh, for a lot of different uh, types of students, which is so much more evident now. Yes, it is. People have more knowledge, I think, about food. But having said that, one thing that strikes me is that um, schools invest a lot of money in health in the form of um, having counsellors, pastoral care, anti-bullying programs. They encourage physical activity. But what a lot of them turn a blind eye to, one of, the, one of the fundamentals of well-being is providing healthy food and therefore modelling good eating behaviour. 
that and you've obviously changed that at Scotch College but do you think that's a problem for most schools? I think it would be and mm. you've just reminded me of an, an amazing conversation I had in our first term in the, in week three I had two teachers come to me and say that's amazing what you're doing I said what do you what do you mean he said do you know that by taking out all the soft drinks and all the confectionery, I've noticed that students in the afternoon are more alert and more awake and not nodding off and their attention span is far, far more attentive. And that staggered me but surprised me. I thought that's great feedback. Yeah, and that actually um, has been verified in a recent study um, where the... um study examined the association between overall dietary quality and academic performance and basically the, the conclusion was that students with a decreased overall dietary quality were significantly more likely to perform poorly so in other words students who had a better diet were likely to perform better so it's what you've said, you've noticed anecdotally, has also been proved scientifically, which is no real surprise. But. No, but it's, it's wonderful that um, they have noticed it and, mm. uh, and, it, and it's, uh, it's happening. So that was, that was a great thing to uh, understand and, and uh, be proud of. And given that um, it does make a difference to students, to their overall well-being and to their academic performance... Why hasn't it been done in more schools? So what are some of the barriers, do you think? I think what I can see from other schools and listening to parents, because we have parents at our school that may have children at another school, and I'll, I'll ask the question of what's the food like, or they'll comment that the food is poor. Unfortunately, what seems to be happening is large uh, catering companies are going in and, and running a school whether it's a boarding kitchen or a canteen in its entirety. And so it's their decision as to what they make. The school might have a little bit of influence, but unfortunately it's really not up to that caterer. At, mm. at our school at Scotch, we're lucky that our boarding kitchen and our canteen are run and owned by the school and and are operated by our own staff so we have the choice of what we give them to eat Mm. Um, and I think that is difficult at other schools where that choice is taken away from them even to the point of providing afternoon tea or morning tea to sports function like if you're hosting another school the parents aren't allowed to do it is that right yeah oh okay at at my kids school there Football at football, the parents supply the afternoon tea, which is good because it's usually home baked. Um, so I think what you're saying is, when these large companies come in and manage the school canteen, they are largely driven by profit. I think not, to, and the bottom line, obviously, not the well-being of our beautiful children. <laughs> so. No, there's a lot more frozen food coming yeah. in in packets and ending up either in a deep fryer or an oven uh, and coming to life. Yeah. <laughs> If you can call it that. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell us about some of the things you've learned along the way? Um, certainly. Uh, is this just from the canteen or just in general? Oh, just from the canteen. Yeah. yeah. Um, what we've found is that the uh, variety of food that uh, students and staff now 
uh, want to explore is absolutely endless. You know, it, there is there's always opportunities to improve or make things different. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take salads for example. We constantly change salads because people can uh, get tired or bored of seeing the same thing so we're always changing whether it's a winter salad whether it's a summer salad so we're looking for things that people would normally like to eat in their in their in the climate that's available at that time Mm. so we do change seasonally what we offer them so that's been one learning Um, we've learned to do more with less because at one stage we had over 150 volunteers we're down to about 50 Mm -hmm. and so one change it doesn't affect the quality of the food it just changes how you prepare the food so we've got better at doing uh, working more efficiently, preparing food uh, quicker and in, in larger volume with less helpers. So mm-hmm. one always has to adapt. Yes. Yeah, it's an ongoing process, isn't it? Yeah. And more generally, what have you learned about eating organic food and seasonal food? Like, have you, do you think it's changed your view of your own health and um, how you feel when you eat? Organic Most food. definitely, yeah. yeah. I, um, I, I mean, I go to a farmer's market every Sunday to source uh, um, uh, the things that we eat at home. Um, organic food is now through certain supermarkets become much more available and accessible, mm. and I think that's brilliant. Um, it, it, even though the organic sh- stores uh, aren't as prevalent, uh, it's still good to see that organic food is readily available and can be sourced. So that interest and desire is still there and, and that'll never uh, never go away because I, be, I just have uh, so much belief in it. Uh, I belong to a biodynamic association in the Adelaide Hills, which I love learning from other people that mm-hmm. have properties and grow their own food or produce their own grains and crops and you always are listening and learning as to how you can grow things without the use of any chemicals and I totally support that. Oh, that's really interesting. So is that a group of people that comes together to discuss these things? Yes, um, two well-known people. I mean, I think most people in Adelaide would be familiar with the... uh, um, Paris Creek and biodynamic farm. Yeah. Um, Uli and Helmut Spranz ran it for 30 years. They've recently sold it, but they are biodynamic farmers and mm. they formed a group many years ago. And so I attend that each month. And yes, you listen and learn. And uh, we do some crazy things like fill up cow horns with manure and bury them in the ground and six <laughs> months later dig them up and that becomes their manure and their formulas so they don't have to buy any manures for their properties. It's oh, quite wow. fascinating. Yeah, and the, the other thing is it tastes absolutely delicious. It is. Yeah. And it's I think once you look at organic or biodynamic food, it's not just food but it's a lifestyle. You look yes, at clearly. you look at the you look at the, the land, you look at the environment, you look at what you can do you know, whether you recycle what you put back into your soil, it just becomes, or for me and our family, it's just a natural process. You just keep expanding your knowledge, but you you, you never lose your belief. Because the soil is a living thing. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, in Adelaide there's some wonderful, uh, there's the Rare Fruit Society. I used to belong to the Natural Health Society, which went for over 50 years. Mm. But... There are so many dedicated groups, but now, of course, one can just go online and find information, which is brilliant. Yes. Um, and still expand our knowledge of, of how to grow things. But, yeah, it comes down to the soil. If we look after the soil 
plants are stronger and healthier, less susceptible to disease, uh, except for gall wasp, Amanda. I haven't solved that oh, one yet. No, we've had some of them in our lemon tree, I think. I think one of the problems with um, monoculture is that it does kill the soil. And so it just you have to keep on heaping on more and more chemicals and pesticides, and that just obviously can't be good. No, I think the the sustainable growers that I speak to, there's a lot to do with companion planting, rotation yeah. of crops, green manure crops, which all are adding nitrogen back into the soil and looking after the mm. soil so it's healthy. And then it's able to produce another crop uh, that yes. next year off. It's had a year off. It's just not getting continually hammered into the ground. Yeah, yeah, it's so important. And I think people are waking up to that. Obviously, you already know that, but... Um, when you think about the US and those massive um, grain farms and whatever they have over there, it's um, yeah the feed lots and yeah. I think I don't know the actual statistics, but I think the amount of food that is produced in America, uh, an enormous amount of it goes towards producing food just for animals, not for people. It does, yeah, it yeah. does. There is a something like sixty percent, or I'll probably have that wrong. And the other problem with that is the huge use of um, antibiotics, because the animals are not eating what they're naturally supposed to eat, so therefore they get sick. It's probably so, yeah, it's mm. probably changed. But I think when I last looked at it about twenty-five years ago, at some stage, eighty percent of the world's production of antibiotics was fed to animals. Yeah, I've heard a similar statistic, yeah. which is scary. It is. Anyway, um, I think we'll wrap up this conversation. So thank you so much for coming today, Mark. And I'd just like to ask my final question that I ask to all my guests. If you could recommend two things that all people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? Um, the thing that comes to mind is the 80-20 rule. I think mm. if you focus on... 80% of the time making an effort to eat well or thinking about your food, then that other 20% allows you to have fun and play with food. You know, if you mm. go to somewhere, don't feel good about having an ice cream or a pizza or, 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 a, or a drink. It's just mm. uh, that's normal and that's part of life. But for me, it's easy because I constantly think about what I'm eating. It's not a, a chore. But, um, yeah, I just think just give more time and energies to what you're eating and see what also you can grow at home because it gives you a lot of pleasure. I mean, fresh basil or fresh tomatoes yeah. out of your garden in oh, summer amazing. are amazing. Growing lettuces, you can do that in spring and in, in early uh, during winter, which can amaze people. But, uh, yeah, just uh, get involved and enjoy it. And, uh, and once you do, just share that knowledge with your family yeah. and others. And get your hands dirty. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thanks a lot, Amanda. You can subscribe to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button and while you're there, click on the bell to be alerted when new episodes are available. You can also subscribe on your favourite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify or Google Podcasts. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Direct links to all social media can be found on the subscribe page of my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com. If you would like to contact me, you can send me a message via the contacts page on my website. Please feel free to suggest topics you'd like to learn more about and people you'd like to hear interviewed, and I'll do my best to deliver that to you. Producing the podcast is a labour of love, 
we put in a lot of time, effort and money behind the scenes. So if you enjoy Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast and would like to make a contribution via Patreon, PayPal or by Amazon to help ensure we continue to provide you with excellent content, please visit the Contribute page on my website. Finally, please take a minute to leave a rating on iTunes. It improves visibility and will help me source excellent guests. Thank you for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.